Welcome to Generations of X, the podcast where we discuss the past, present, and future of X-Men. I'm your host, the adjectiveless Linkman. All things X-Men. All things. All things X-Men. Damn it. You should have... You saw me typing it. I didn't read it. I thought you heard me. All right, Flickman, let's try that intro one more time. Welcome to Generations of X, the podcast where we discuss the past, present, and future of all things X-Men. I'm your host, the adjectiveless Flinkman. And I am your other host, the uncanny Dayspring. And folks, this is a very, very special episode because we are actually here together in person. It's like Battle World. Like, two worlds completely opposite colliding we're occupying the same space and um yeah i i got booked for a gig down down here i don't want to reveal your location you wouldn't want anyone to know where to send the sentinels (laughs) so i got booked for a gig in uh in flickman's neighborhood or hood city whatever hood hood and uh and i've seen a couple days with him and we're like let's record I'm sorry, I took a sip and it like threw me off. It's fine. Like I'm... Flickman is already ruining the podcast. IRL. I can't even look at him straight in the eye because this is like... so, this is sort of strange. Like we're both hovered like super close around this microphone, like staring each other in the face. We read comic books this morning together, and it was so wonderful. Like he poured me some coffee in the Outback mug. He has. The it ex- took you being here and me watching somebody else drinking out of it to notice. That it's missing long shot, and that's that's a tragedy. Okay, well, let's talk about the real tragedy, which is you were telling me, oh, you Instagrammed the mug, but you didn't get long shot and Dazzler, and then you paused, and you're like, wait a minute. I said Havoc and Dazzler. Oh, you said Havoc and Dazzler? Two-thirds of my top three. Wow, I really wasn't paying attention to you this morning. What else is new? Um, but speaking of new, um, maybe everyone has noticed that in the last year, the X-Men have gone through a very significant change. And folks, for today's podcast, we're going to do two things. We're going to talk about the Hickman reboot, uh, House of X, Powers of Ten, and Dawn of X. And then we're going to get into Ten of Swords. And, you know, we're still figuring out how we're going to be doing the segments on this podcast, but we're always going to begin talking about something, you know, X-Men adjacent, you know, related, whether it's movies, TVs, or relaunches, and then we're going to go into the weekly issues. Yeah, because you know, we're two people that have quite a bit of thoughts on all things X-Men. And you can't escape Jonathan Hickman. He is dominating all things X-Men at this point. So discussing him seems like a a pretty good place to start if we're going to dive into the first crossover of the Dawn of X era. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, first, you know, Dayspring, tell us your thoughts on, uh, on what launched this era, House of X, Powers of Ten. Um... Here's how I feel about it. It was rough. It was, like, really rough uh, for a couple years there. Like, I want to be very um, sympathetic to Rosenberg because he he tried. He tried. He tried. He brought back Gene. He brought back Cyclops. He, he, you know, he did not bring back Wolverine. That was Charles Soule. But he brought Wolverine into, like, the main X-Men comics again in a significant way. And for the first time in about five years or so. Yeah. And like, I want to give him credit where credit is due because I love the Salvador LaRocca art that we got uh, during his run. But 
man, I was reading that and they were just killing off X-Men and I thought it was like ultimatum. Remember that crossover for... Um, How could I forget that crossover? The ultimate uh, line of books. And it was it was bleak for me. I was like, how do we... How, how, where do we go from here? Quite frankly, I don't think I even finished that run because I think I was in the UK at the time that it was wrapping up and I was still buying like weekly issues at that point. And I just, when I came back from that trip, I was so broke. I like, I never went to the comic book store in person again. Sorry for the pull box. Uh, so I don't think I even finished it. Well, you didn't finish it? That last scene where there's a sentinel like ready to attack and it gets torn apart and it's Jean and she just levitates through Wolverine and Emma and gives Cyclops like the biggest kiss. You were talking about that last week and it, it didn't ring any bells for me. Really? Well, I'm sorry you missed another great G moment, but I don't know. If I'm going to hate on a character, at least I'll have my receipts. But I guess that's not the case for you. I read all of X Factor. <laughs> Those are receipts. And by to be clear, I'm talking about the pre-Peter David X Factor. But that's a whole another episode. So, you know, I kind of knew Hickman was coming. I didn't really know... It was Hickman until it was officially announced, but I worked with Charles Soule at um, my previous job, and he told me something big was coming for the X-Men. And I was like, ooh, I wonder what that's going to be. And then, obviously, Hickman was announced. And I like Secret Wars. I like the crossover he did. Um, My main qualm with Hickman going into the crossover, or going into House of X and Powers of Ten, I was worried that he was going to be very mechanical. I think he's a great writer who can do world building, but I think he, I think his characters can sound a bit stiff, like data dumping, like in the dialogue. Very smart, very well-crafted, but nonetheless, data dumping. Yeah, my experience with Hickman to this point had really just been Secret Wars, and I read some of his early pre-Future Foundation Fantastic Four, and I just kind of felt like he has a tendency to overcomplicate really simple superhero ideas. And so I was really nervous that he was going to come in and turn the X-Men into like this super wordy, cerebral book. And it's not that I don't appreciate when the X-Men, you know, stand for something, when there's deeper metaphors and meaning in the stories. It's just, I still want them to be fun. I still want there to be an element of that cheesy, campy superhero-ness to them. And that's something that Secret Wars and his Avengers and his Fantastic Four, I thought they were a little too self-serious. And I thought, I was worried that that was going to, you know, taint the entire line of X-Books. Because like when it's something like just Uncanny X-Force, which you love, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm mild on it. I think it has some really great stuff. But I think it did a lot of the same things where it really uh, was overcomplicated for the sake of being overcomplicated, for the sake of being like, ooh, this is going to be new and different. I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but it's so intellectual that it loses the reader. And, it, and, and look, I love what Graham Morrison said once upon a time that he writes for the smart 14-year-old. Right. I like that. I love you that. have to have the 14-year-old. Yeah. That, that has to be part of the equation, in my opinion. But if I'm a 14-year-old, like, I could digest Morrison. Maybe some of the larger themes will get lost on me or some of the intricacies with his writing. But I feel Hickman is so cerebral and so, like, out there. And it takes itself, as you said, so self-serious that you can kind of get lost. Right. And not know what's actually going on. But that first issue of House of X, I thought 
holy fucking shit. And it it redefined the X-Men in just one issue. Yeah, it completely did. And the it, and we didn't know about Krakoa going into it, right? I mean, I don't know, maybe it was in the previews, maybe people had given interviews, but me as a reader who probably wasn't following the marketing and publicity leading up to it, I was genuinely surprised with Krakoa. Same, same. And that's because I've, you know, I've kind of discovered that reading all the spoilers on Bleeding Cool and reading all the solicits every month and like seeing all the preview art, that takes a little bit of the joy out of reading the actual issue because you sit there, you have time to, you know, speculate what's happening, if there's no words, and you... you I, I don't know. I think it... I think it's better for me to go in blind. So yeah, I had no idea what this what this story was going to be about. And of course, you know, it just blew me away. Well, when Doug Ramsey says, like, the professor has changed everything. I mean, really? it's true. That he did. And comics use that kind of hyperbole all the time. You know, they hype themselves up as this event is going to change everything. And I feel like this is one time where that hype was real. Yeah, that it was, was real. completely justified. Um, we won't get into like the specifics of the issues by issues here because we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, but needless to say, it was great. I mean, and Pepe Larraz came on board. I think he was doing things already for Marvel. Say about him, and we got to really experience Pepe Larraz. I don't. It, this wasn't his first time doing the X Men, right? No, he, he did some work on Extermination and the more recent. Oh, he did do Extermination. Did. You're absolutely right. He did. He did some Extermination, and, and he was phenomenal. He did that more recent uh, X Force that reunited the original team with Teen Cable and Teen Strife. Um, and neither one of those, I thought, really, while the art was beautiful, it didn't give him enough to do. And, and this gave him a lot. The world building that he does and just the opening issues and pages. Which uh, is gorgeous. It set a tone. It set the tone for a new era. I don't want to like get all like, oh, it was kind of like Jim Lee. But this first issue, the first issue of House of X, like really just like brought it. And Hickman, you know, Hickman took the source material. This is what I love that Hickman did. And I, I read later interviews um, where he said this. But he was here like, I'm going to take X-Men history seriously. And I'm going to connect things. You know, because a lot of X-Men, you know, you're telling these one-off stories that have no connection to, like, previous stories. So he really wanted to rectify that. Uh, and while we have to give all the credit in the world to uh, Pepe Larraz for, you know, the world building of Krakoa... Uh, credit must also be given to R.B. Silva, who oh. drew the Powers of Ten portion of Hickman's intro story. Um, he was another one that we had seen around the X office a little bit. Yeah, R.B. Silva is phenomenal. He also did that 90s variant cover uh, recently with all the 90s X-Men. And it was, it inspired feels. I mean, he and Pepe... Um, their art just goes so well together. Yeah, and R.B. Silva, we had seen uh, a little bit in the uh, teen X-Men, X-Men Blue, a little bit. Oh, X-Men Blue, you're right. You're right. So, you know, the X-Books were in a very curious place. Um, I don't think many readers were, were gravitating towards some of these titles. I don't know, if you were, let us know. I think there was some of the some of the mini series right before the end were were somewhat interesting. Uh, Matthew Rosenberg's Madrox Multiple Man uh, mini series and his New Mutants uh, Dead Souls were were both Dead pretty Souls interesting. 
Um, but the main books had been directionless for, for years at that point. So yeah, it was, following the Messiah arc. Yes, and Avengers versus X-Men. and yeah. Like, we kind of lost, like, where they were going. I always thought, like, they should have tackled rebuilding mutant society. And they did here and there. But, like, I feel like as the narrative for the Messiah, like, saga was all about, like, saving mutants. It was so clear they should have had, like, a reconstruction period. And they never really tackled that. No, and, you know, we could go on all day about why that is, film rights and, and the ascension of the Avengers and the Guardians of the Galaxy at the expense of the, the more interesting teams like the X-Men and the Fantastic Four. Um, but it's nice, you know, once that was cleared up, it was nice to position the X-Men front and center again. And Devin Fahey was like, you can start publishing more comics about the X-Men. Thank you. Right. And I, everyone Marvel's like, thank you. Yes, we yes, will. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Kevin Fahey. Thank you, Ike Perlmutter, for taking your head out of Trump's butt long enough to realize <laughs> X-Men comics print money. Uh, I don't want to think about where the money we spend on them goes. Um... Anyways, moving forward, so the X-Men are front and center of the universe again, and for the first time since, uh, well, you know, maybe here and there we've had huge relaunches of all the X-Books at a time, but really this was um, most reminiscent of the 1991 relaunch where we got Jim Lee and Chris Claremont on Adjectiveless, Peter David on X-Factor, Excalibur, X-Force, you know, the golden age to a lot of people, certainly our age. you know, we had a whole new series of X-Books with familiar titles, for the yeah. most part, spinning out. Well, wait, 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 wait. We're forgetting the biggest thing, though, that Hickman did, which is Moira. He brought back Moira. I mean, I don't know how you can talk about House of X and Powers of Ten without addressing Moira. You know? True. She, she, she went from, like... I don't, want to, I don't want to ever call her, like, a C-list character, but, like, a character that just was never really front and center... And, like, maybe she was Proteus's mom, maybe she was Banshee's girlfriend, maybe she was a geneticist. I mean, she was always a victim of what the plot wanted, and now she has her own story. She has a very interesting background, and at the center of the X-Universe, and I thought that was wonderful. I think the carnival scene, when she meets Xavier, uh, they teased it as being the most important, you know, scene in X-Men history, and it was. It was. was. Absolutely. You know, it, it makes us... The thing that I really like about uh, House of X, Powers of Ten is the fact that it rewrites the existing... It, it puts a new perspective on the existing X-Men history, and it makes you think back and reflect on these stories that you right. know and you love, and you look at them in this new context. You know, we, I don't want to spoil this for, for any of you listening who yeah, might, we're not not, spoil anything. might not have read. Um, do it now. Go to your now. local comic Hit book store. Hit pause. Go to your local comic book store and pick up these issues. Uh, but no, it 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 makes you reflect on everything the past fifty years of X Men. It makes you reflect on the past, present, and future of all things X Men. Look at that plugging, finding a plug for our podcast but, in our own podcast. So our previous episode we recorded four hours, so we're going to try to move this along a little bit. But I just want to say I think Hickman's. Uh, relaunch has been great. I think there are some flaws to it. And, um, you know, one of those flaws is I feel we're getting a lot of story. We're getting a lot of content. And it's almost like, ah, you're giving me so much. I love what you're giving me, but to start following through with them. Like, give it to me in, like, digestible bites. Right. I would say that something up until up until now, until the Swords of Ten era, uh, 
it wasn't the the individual monthly books weren't following through on all of the high concepts uh, that was introduced in the two lead-in series and just in their own basic premises. Uh, you know, I think it it didn't necessarily feel like it was killing time waiting to get to Powers of Ten, but it was just not answering the interesting questions that it was setting up. Um, and now that's it's starting to sort of do that, so yeah. I, I can't. And I don't want to flaw. I, I don't want to flaw Hickman for that. It's just you know, if you're an X fan and you've been an X fan for decades, you get burned by all these writers coming in with great ideas, high concepts, and then they leave, and those concepts never come to fruition. Right. So as long as Hickman is going to say, I think he's like what, like editorial director of the X Men. I think he has like some kind of unofficial title. I almost want to say it's executive producer. Executive producer of the X books and. You know, that's great. Keep him on board. Have him signed on for a couple years and let him tell a story beginning, middle, and end. I'm fine with that. It's so, what we all wish would have happened with yeah. Grant Morrison. So, and I hope that's what the, the format in the X office is going to be. They're just going to bring in new executive producers. Head of X. Head of X. <laughs> what a great title. That is, I wish I was head of X. Oh, and what is the acronym for them? For that? H-O-X. Hawks. Hawks. Um, but yeah, I mean... With the exception of that, like I think it's a great relaunch. Is there a particular story, Flickman, that you're that you're really excited about that's been introduced that you can't wait to see where it goes? You know, I would say the most. I wouldn't say there's any particular story as of yet. Um, you know, the the business with Kitty Pride and Marauders um, yeah. was interesting, and then sort of. It didn't. The payoff wasn't there, but I would still say that um, in general, the Marauders uh, it was my favorite of the initial round of of books. Um, and and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but these books now I believe are being designed to be like twelve issue stories, so they know they'll end, and they'll you know if the if the book is doing well they'll keep it. If not, like Fallen Angels, they'll just retire it and like they'll move on to something else. I'm down with that. Like, have the books planned out. Like, I think X-Men always benefits from, like, a relaunch. And I know that's really contentious. Like, I love having, like, Uncanny X-Men 1 through, like, 500. Right. But, you know, from a marketing standpoint, that's fine. You know you're going to relaunch the book. Prepare for it. You know, do 12 issues. Make sure the writer and the artist, you know, do their thing. And then, you know, introduce another story. But I'm... Dude... Wolverine, Jean, Cyclops, this menage a trois that's going on. Like, what? Like, what is going on there? And Emma is obviously still in the mix there. So, but I mean, there's so much to like pick. But I will say what I'm most interested, in, what I want to see um, to come to fruition, and, and I, Hickman has to write it. I want Myra X versus Destiny. That's what I want. That's definitely coming. That's, I mean, folks, like when we saw Destiny come in in House of X, and spoiler alert, spoiler alert. I thought um, we said no spoilers. No spoilers. Um, and she confronts Moira. I was just like, I was gagging. I the, and again, he took two characters who kind of had like a history in the comics, but he made it smart. Like, why would Moira and Destiny be? like arched enemies exactly. and it's because myra can you know be reborn and destiny can see endless possibilities i thought we said no spoilers sorry anyways so speaking of spoilers maybe do you have anything else to say about hickman uh no honestly um 
The direction is great. Um, most of the titles, I love how they have their own individual voice. Some of them have meandered a little bit, but yeah. I think all of them um, are going somewhere now. And I'm really looking forward to Marauders, Hellions, and X Factor in particular. Yeah. All right. So uh, speaking of spoilers, we are going to switch segments now. And we're going to talk about the weekly books, specifically the Ten of Swords crossover. And folks, we're covering Wolverine number six. X-Force number 13, and Marauders number 13. So if you haven't read those books, go to your local comic book store, go get them. Well, be safe. I mean, it's still a pandemic, so <laughs> we're not endorsing. Go there with your Do protective gear. Do not catch gear. the legacy virus. Don't get the legacy virus. You know, be or safe. Or organic virus. Do they still do subscriptions? Like, can you still get comic books mailed to you? That is an excellent question. Oh, is it an excellent question? I honestly... No... Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. But be safe. I mean, just get these books. They're really... I'm going to say they're really good this week. So we're going to dive in. Going to dive right in. And we're not going to... You know, when you have three issues of a single crossover out in one week, which, by the way, it's going to happen next week as well. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We want to get to all of it. So we're going to go a little fast. Um, Like I said... we have a timer. (laughs) We do recommend that you go and read these books for yourselves because they are quite good. All right, so let's do this. The first book we are discussing is Wolverine number 6, which is Chapter 3 of the Ten of Swords crossover. Our writer is Benjamin Percy, who has been writing Wolverine and X-Force in the Dawn of X era, and I'm an absolute fan of his. Our artist is Victor Bogdanovic, and our colorist is Matthew Wilson. Right, so let's just dive right into the lava pit here, which is uh, where we open the issue. Um, I'm just going to go full disclosure. I'm no Wolverine fan, so I have not uh, been following this book thus far. Um, I have. It's pretty... It's good. It's it's very getting into, like, like, the bones of Wolverine, like what makes him the adamantium bones that make him who he is. And I've enjoyed it. I think he does a wonderful Wolverine. I guess my question, what I was, uh, has the art been consistent? Because that is something, just from page one, I'm super into the art. The art's beautiful. It's absolutely fantastic. And folks, apologies for the interruption. This is Dayspring from the Future wanting to clarify that Adam Kubert has also been the artist for Wolverine in the Dawn of X relaunch. All right, back to the podcast. So we open in Hell, which is a place that Wolverine has uh, visited a few times before. Um, We're not sure, you know, the last issue did not leave us anywhere in this situation, so we are not sure what's going on. But we open in Hell before we jump to Krakoa, where uh, Wolverine is having a conversation uh, with Krakoa himself. And it's, I mean, he is spilling the tea to Krakoa. And I love the art there. I just love how small like Wolverine is compared to Krakoa's face. And he says something like, you're the voice that only like really matters. And, you know, even though the quiet council, you know, is comprised of like kings and queens, um, you're the one at the end of the day who wanted the gate open. Right? Yeah, right. That's what he said. And um, he's like, I'm just going to go fight because that's what I do, but I'm not going to be blinded to the fact that, you know, you did this. Like, you started war. We're trying to, like, rebuild our society. We're trying not to be war-torn. And you, who are supposed to be our land, our sacred land, you've uh, you've doomed us. Right. And so the purpose of Wolverine's quest uh, here is to retrieve 
one of the ten swords uh, that is driving this event. What's the name of the sword again? The sword is the Muramasa Blade, and that originally came into play um, in a post-House of M world where Wolverine woke up with all of his memories, and we got the Wolverine Origins. Because oh, you see, I knew it was like somewhere in our in in X history, but I couldn't remember. But yeah, that scene at the end of House of M, where Wolverine like wakes up like Nightcrawler finds yes. him, he's like, I remember, I remember all of it. Yes, and one of the things he remembered is of course the Muramasa blade, um, which you know, forgive me, like I said, no no huge Wolverine fan here. I did read some of those early issues of Wolverine Origins. It wasn't for me, but I, of course I do remember, obviously, that he had a badass red sword. Um, I believe it was destroyed in that run. So we move on here to Wolverine speaking to Silver Samurai about the location of Muramasa and how he can get a replacement sword. And I will say, uh, I think a mistake was made in this scene because it specifically has Wolverine mentioning to Silver Samurai that he's pissed, or that Silver Samurai is pissed that he is being left out of an event that involves swords, which honestly, fair, fair, fair. Silver Samurai hasn't been given a whole lot to do in the last 20 years or so. Um, And I feel like if you're going to have an event based around swords, he should probably have a big role to play in that. And I think it's a little bit of a miss, and it's not one that I would have noticed if they hadn't called it out in the story I itself. Agree. And I actually didn't even notice it as well until you mentioned something um, the other day. But yeah, I mean, I think that is a missed opportunity, but you know, we're, we're all X-Men in a Wolverine world, and Wolverine is going to get a spotlight. I, I am a huge Wolverine fan. I, I love the character, and... Um, you know, I don't think... I mean, I, I understand why he's always front and center. He's the one that resonates with most people. And, you know, he's the face of the franchise. I, I will argue that him and Storm are the most iconic X-Men. Not in a couple. They're, that pairing frustrates Not me. Not a end. couple. Not a couple. Uh, Not a couple. But anyways, so, um, yeah. So he has that conversation with Silver Samurai. He gets the information, some information that he needs to track down Muramasa. And then we flash over to Arako and um, the Tower of Broken Will. I love the names. Like, I just... So um, dramatic. So dramatic. Like, I'm all into it. And Apocalypse's children, right? These are Apocalypse's children. Uh, Pestilence in War. Uh, Pestilence is the one that kind of looks like he has a Professor X Cerebro helmet on. And War is the flaming head. Uh, these designs are gnarly. Like... I want to know who actually designed these characters i think Mm -hmm. it was pepe laraz i I think think it was the incredible pepe we love you pepe we love you pepe so they're going down like this spiral staircase and they reach this other person this other being called solemn and uh we find out through the conversation that solemn actually has a very sordid history with them it looks like solemn killed war's husband and had, she she was talking about how she had to raise her children without a father, or did he murder her children as well? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Didn't so, kill the kids. so he said, uh, she said, "You killed my husband, robbed me of my love and my child of his father." So just one child, and already I'm into it. I, I, you know what? I think it's really fleshed out. I think Percy's doing a good job with these characters. He probably had, you know, 
very little to draw on and he was working with Hickman and this this sounds really real this sounds really tangible so there's come a time now that we need to get Solemn you know out of his lair he's been incarcerated for what I think like centuries or you know for centuries thousands 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 of years so he's been incarcerated for thousands of years and we find out he could have left whenever he wanted to but he's like on vacation Hundreds. Hundreds. Oh, okay, it's hundreds of years. So he's been incarcerated for hundreds of years. And uh, we find out that he, by choice, is staying, staying there because he could just, like, break off his um, his chains. And he was given a sword and he was said, like, you know, your despair is, you know, going to get so bad that you may one, one day want to take your own life. And he was here like, yeah, I'm still waiting for that to happen. Like, I've just been enjoying my vacation and so they need him, and they need to go find the. How do you call it? Muramasa. Muramasa. That's how I pronounce it. Whether Muramasa. They don't need to find the. Blade. I want to call it mimosa. The mimosa sword. It is brunch time. Um. So no. So they go to not find the Muramasa blade, which has by this point been confirmed destroyed. So Wolverine needs him to make him another blade. So we get a little montage scene of Wolverine working his way uh, across Japan. Um, we see a little flash of Ogun. We see, I believe, a flash of Mariko, uh, his late uh, fiance. Um, yeah, so then we, we discover that, you know, he is headed to some creepy looking temple, something that had been buried a long time. And he's being followed. He's being followed by uh, some ninjas. Because, uh, of course, it's Wolverine. You have to have ninjas following him. Have to have the ninjas. I mean, it's like a hallmark. So we discover that he is in Japan uh, still. He opens some doors and it's, uh, he sees, it's really hard to describe what's happening here because at this point they're flashing between uh, past, then, and now. Yeah. Um, so we're going back and forth. So uh, literally every other panel, one Between is Japan and hell. So it's really hard to describe what's going here. Uh, essentially we have a... Uh, Wolverine's adamantium skeleton crawling out of a pit of lava. And I think a lot of folks are probably going to have some feelings on uh, Wolverine being burned down to his skeleton and Mm -hmm. still being able to survive and heal. Mm -hmm. But that has been established since Civil War. Uh, That wonderful arc where Wolverine uh, chased down Nuke and Nuke... uh, exploded and blew all of the all of his skin and muscle away and it was a big controversy at the time so um lots of people are probably going to have issue with that i personally don't mind it's a cool visual every time it happens well that's exactly what i was about to say the visual is phenomenal i mean the art in this issue is just like on point so he eventually you know again like cutting between like the past and like the present he gets to muramasa he sees him he sees his body you know, like in a pentagram, and then it flashes to the present where um, Logan's adamantium skeleton just like got out of the pit, and Muramasa is standing before him, and he's like a demonic zombie, and he's asking Logan to save him. And that is where the issue wraps. There so, is a data page afterwards, but we're not going to get too much into these data pages, but I do want to mention on uh, this one a mention of Mad Jim Jasper's. As I've said a million times, I love all of the original Marvel UK stuff uh, with Otherworld, uh, the Furies, Mad Jim Jaspers, all of that. So I'm hoping, um, you know, they keep 
giving us these little other world blurbs uh, and name dropping some folks. I hope some of these regents like Mad Jim Jaspers and Jamie Braddock eventually come into play here. I can't imagine that they won't. So how did you feel about the issue? Well, honestly, I don't know that we can talk this issue without talking the next one. Fair. Because the next issue um, that we're going to cover, chapter four, was also written by Benjamin Percy, and it picks up exactly you know where right where off. this left off so i think i'd rather talk about yeah r- talk about them together as a Sorry. whole i i can't remember a time uh in recent past where we've had two issues by one artist out in the same week so good excellent I, job victor i feel though that because we've had so much time in between like when this crossover was announced and the pandemic and it actually pubbing they were able to go back and like add, they had months to like add chapters to this and like maybe we're benefiting a lot with this like little sidebar but anyways continue right so this issue picks up right where we left off right on the cover we have our new villain and rival to Wolverine in the uh, Ten of Swords tournament. Mm-hmm. Solemn looking down on Wolverine's uh, adamantine skeleton arm yeah. coming out of the lava. And it's gnarly the way it's like healing itself. Like again, this is an instance where the art is also telling the story so well. You can just see like his flesh just like growing back on the adamantium skeleton. So as the story picks up, we discover, shocking, that the ninjas following Wolverine are none other than the hand. But there's oh, something- the hand again. There's something different. There's, as Wolverine says in his little uh, thoughts here, there's something other than men beneath these masks. What have you gotten yourself caught up in, Muramasa? So these aren't your typical uh, hand ninjas. They're hell <laughs> and ninjas. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure, but we... Uh, I'm then, here for it. I'm here for it. And so Wolverine, we come full circle back to the opening of last issue with Wolverine's adamantium skeleton crawling out of the lava uh, where he encounters the demonic Muramasa that we saw at the end of last issue. And uh, what is Muramasa doing in hell? Um, So he's a prisoner and he's a swordsmith. And he's just like... um. I must uh, make haste because it's almost time for the ceremony. And then we cut back to the hellhole where Solemn comes in and sees uh, Logan. And he's here like, so you're Logan. The two of us are going to fight to get the Mormasa blade. And then we cut back to um, where Solemn has been this entire time. And, you know, it looks like he's going through hell. I mean, we have like the imagery there of like, decapitated heads he's having to go on like the river sticks i mean that's how i interpret that as well yeah we Um, get some more cool visuals here from bogdanovic uh of a pair of witch sisters one of whom has like a literal cyclops eye and then the other who has no eyes at all except for the eye on her tongue um that's a pretty cool little detail there and we start finding out more about the marmasa blade and apparently it is a key to hell did i get that right no, so that is actually um, a different blade. Oh, I know, so blade. many swords. So many. These folks, these these X-Men, like, they're just swinging their swords around. It is the, uh, Solemn has a, the Hellblade. Oh, the um, Hell. I thought the Hellblade, I, I know visually it looks different, but I just thought they were, like, saying that it's, 
it's a sword that can like transport like the Muramasa blade could like transport people to hell. Right. So it turns out that the Hellblade is a literal key that opens the okay, door so it's a to hell. hell. It's a Hellblade, not the Muramasa blade. Got Correct. It. Correct. Uh, or Muramasa sword, sorry. And so the witch that gives uh Solemn, you know, his clues to use the the sword as a key, uh gives him another clue um that he will find a mutant made of metal. Uh, and in the hellhole, guess who that uh, mutant made of metal wait, is? Wait, who? Who is it? Who? 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 X-23. <laughs> oh, X-23! And boom! No, just joking. No, unfortunately, uh, she is still locked in a time pit with Sink and... Uh, Darwin. Darwin, yes, yes. Sorry, Darwin. Um, so we wake up. Wolverine wakes up uh, in his hellhole with Solemn, who, you know, is talking some shit. Uh, he has a pretty fancy chainmail suit that Wolverine cannot penetrate. But as we have learned about Solomon in our brief time with him, there really isn't a cage that can hold him, and they quickly break out of their cell together. And they hit up the, the ceremony that's happening, and there's, like, this big, like, fat demon who's just sitting on a throne with, like, a belly button like piercing <laughs> out of the way because you know he's evil because he has a belly button piercing and like a demonic like sneer going on there um and i was kind of confused here i didn't understand what they were going with i thought this was like a marriage ceremony because it was really really strange but uh these two unnamed warriors are going to be presented with the muramasa blades Right? Correct. And at this point, uh, we don't know that there... We did not know that there was actually going to be two Muramasa blades. No. Gasp! Gasp! Two! So there's just really... Uh, there's like, no need to fight. Like, one for everyone, right? Right. Mm, if only it were that easy. If only it were that simple. Um, because, no, of course there's a reason to fight, as Solomon and Wolverine have dressed up as Hellhand Ninjas and mm-hmm. interrupt this beautiful wedding ceremony in Hell... Uh, and they each snap a Muramasa blade, and both seem uh, pretty excited that they're not going to have to kill each other to get their hands on one. Yeah, and I actually really like that. You know, one of the things that I've, and, you know, kind of like a spoiler for the next issue we'll talk about, the characters are having real conversations about, like, the situation they're in. Because, yeah, you have two blades, you don't have to kill each other for it, you know. But as we later find out, though Salam is a kind, fair, generous man, he still tells Logan, "You, if you want, if you want to buy a blade, there's going to be a price you have to pay for it." Right. So Solemn wound up with both of the Muramasa blades. Yep. yep. Uh, let's Wolverine know that there is a price to pay for it. We get Wolverine asking, "What do you want?" And then the next shot is him coming through the gate with the sword, and we have no clue what price was paid for it. But he joins Magic. Yes, um, he's and, already in position, and they are standing on this beautiful uh, pedestal thing that uh, Polaris made out of rock, rock slide. slide. <laughs> um, my only question: They're standing here, on his corpse. They're they, literally standing on, on Rock Slide's corpse with their blades. Well, you know, it's an interesting way of honoring a C-list X-Men character. But yeah. my yeah. Question here is: Has Magic just been standing here all She's this time, waiting, waiting by She's herself? No, but it's Krakoa because she can just like, right? Like, food just magically appears off of trees, like mana. I guess we would call it mana. But um, yeah, so it's a great setup to the crossover. Now we know Wolverine has his blade. We have two of the champions, 
Are they are they designated as champions? Or am I just like saying champions? No, no, champions. It's like, it's like very Champ- they're, champions. Yeah, so. they're they are referred to specifically as the champions. Uh, of Otherworld from Krakoa, I'm yeah. pretty sure something... Because Inter- remember, Saturnine is not using her own people to defend <sighs> Otherworld. She has recruited the X-Men, so yes, I believe... Come on, Courtney Ross. Oh, wait, she's not Courtney Ross. We don't know. Maybe someday. Maybe maybe in this crossover, Hickman can clear that up for us. But, but he, here's one thing that I'm not, like, wild about. Like, again, and I said this in our previous episode... Um, I don't know how we're airing these episodes, but I I, ha- I do have grievance that the stakes with death keep coming up, even though we're supposed to be post-death with the X-Men. But I will say, we are set up here for this crossover. Two of the champions have their blades, and it's a fight to the death. And if they die in Otherworld, they get their 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 downloads get corrupted, and we will not we will lose the X-Men or the champion as we know them. Right. So you know. I understand why you might be sick of all the death in this post-death uh, world that the X-Men are supposed to be living in, but I have to say, uh, giving them actual stakes in this contest uh, yeah. feels like the right move. So how do you feel about these two issues? So yeah, let's get into that, because I really view these two issues as one, uh, just because the creative team is the same, and it's essentially uh, one long issue of Logan, how Logan gets his hands on the Muramasa Blade. Um, I have to tell you, I'm glad that these two issues came out the same week because otherwise I would probably have been pissed off that we had uh, two two weeks weeks of Wolverine slowly making his way through hell to get his sword. I do think it blunted the momentum of the last issue a little bit. Um, You know, the last issue is where things really started to come together. It was a more, you know, I always prefer my ex-books and certainly my ex-crossovers to be more of a group affair. Um, You know, I want there to be a nice, robust cast of characters. Uh, So I think slowing it down to focus two issues on just Wolverine, it's, they weren't bad, obviously. The art was gorgeous. It moved the plot along in an interesting way and it introduced uh, an interesting new character in Solemn. Uh, I'm glad he... You know, there was more than one Muramasa Blade so that we didn't get all this set up just to kill a character. Yeah, I don't need to see Wolverine, like, fighting just to get a prized possession anymore. Like, I, it was a very smart way uh, within the story. But, um, you know, I think we have these chapters, by the way. I, I don't know. Like, I think about this from an editorial perspective. Again, they've had so much time with the pandemic. Did they just shoehorn these stories in just to make the crossover bigger because they were able to, like, create more content? Or... Would this have been still part of the narrative, but it would have been like a side book. Right. You know, it would have been part of the mainstream. I don't know. I'm okay with it. I, I, I don't necessarily... You liked it more than I did. I did. I love the idea of Wolverine being hellbound. I love the idea of him emerging with the blade, having to pay a price. Like, you know, it, it's almost, you know, like a, a narrative that you struck a deal with the devil. Right. And now we need to figure out, you know, what Logan did. I, I'm I'm fine with it. I I'm not I don't think momentum was broken. I just think we know this is gonna be twenty two chapters. Let's let's like segue a little bit. Right, and I think uh Hellbound is actually an interesting choice of words because what this reminded me of in a lot of ways was the uh secondary miniseries that ran alongside X Men Second Coming, uh X Men Hellbound. Um and I feel like not just because they were both 
based in hell. Of course, that is a you know a big reason why it reminds me of it. But also just because it felt like this was more of a B story, mm, and I fair. feel like if we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on characters getting their swords uh, in the main book. Um, I see how this is going to be 22 chapters because we have 10 swords to get. It took two issues for Wolverine to get one. Um, I feel like a lot of this could have been potentially, you know, X of Swords, Wolverine, one shot, how he had yeah. oversized issue on how he gets his sword. Oh, right, right. Or, you right. know, I didn't you know, even think about it like that. Marauders yeah. is going to, you know, spoiler, uh, is going to focus on, on how Storm uh, gets her sword. So I think we could have maybe cut the actual event issues in half, not forced people to buy uh, 22 $4 comics, and given them the option of opting into, do I want to know all this detail about how Wolverine got his blade? Um, yeah, folks, and it's too early to tell if this is a part of the story you could skip just because uh, it's a pandemic and all of us are, and the wallets are hurting, especially if you're buying those Marvel Legends that Hasbro keeps uh, turning out. But I would say... Yeah, I mean, all you need to know is Wolverine comes out with the blade. You could easily skip over this chapter or these two chapters. Right. But again, we have to see the entire crossover to like make that assessment. In hindsight, you know, I might be really appreciative that we took all of yeah. this time to uh, dive into how our characters got the swords. Um, and on that note, I will say that the uh, next issue and the next character getting a hold of their sword, I found to be a lot more interesting what do we have going on here? Sir? Well, we have a very special issue of Marauders. This is Chapter 5 of the crossover, Issue 13 of Marauders. Our writer is Vida Ayala. Our artist is Mateo Loli. And our colorist is Edgar Delgado. So I do actually want to point out that this issue of Marauders was written by a different writer than usual. Uh, usually it's Jerry Dugan uh, writing Marauders, but... This month, this issue was actually written by a uh, queer person of color, uh, Vida Ayala. Uh, and apologies, Vida, if I mispronounced that last name. But um, I think having Storm written by uh, not just a person of color, but a queer person of color goes a long, long way towards explaining why she was written so, so strongly in this issue. And, uh, you know, Vida isn't a total stranger to the X office. They actually wrote Prisoner X um, back during the Age of X-Men crossover. And uh, they were a contributing writer to the third issue of X-Men Empire as well. Um, that was released just a few weeks back. And I, you know, I think we both really enjoyed that. And um, yeah, you know, certainly tackling an issue like this during a crossover like Ten of Swords is, uh, is a show of confidence from Marvel. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing more of what they can do in December uh, when they take over writing New Mutants with issue 14. Can, can, I, can I say what I want to say? You know where I'm going to go with this. I know where you're going to go with it. Dive the in. The opening data page, or the opening quote that we've been getting in the Hickman run is from uh, S.A. Graham, and they are, in, uh, they are an onslaught survivor. And they're talking about Storm and how Storm was during the onslaught and like when New York was burning. And, you know, you can read it for yourself, but I love the line uh, where they said, I just knew no matter what else happened, she was there. And we were going to be okay. Right. And it's a it, it's an excellent setup uh, for the issue. It really um, drives home how big of a hero Storm can be to people and how inspiring of a character that she can be. And, and we I, don't we don't normally get that. From we her. haven't gotten that in a we long got, time. Like, I think like Astonishing X-Men, like when they went to uh, save this like 
these gala, the, the people at a gala from Ord, they were like, like the press afterwards was like, oh my God, who was flying through the sky? Was that Storm? And you're like, wow, Storm is really popular and rightfully so. But Storm doesn't usually get, for being as iconic and as strong, as powerful she is, we don't really get to like see that in story as much. And the fact that it was an Onslaught survivor who said that, and Onslaught being one of my favorite X-Men crossovers, uh, I'm happy with it. Yeah, and I think that using that kind of quote in particular about how big of a hero she is uh, really sets up the stakes for what happens in this issue where Mm -hmm. she is slightly less of a hero than she usually is portrayed as. Yeah, let's dive into it because I have feels on how uh, she was portrayed here. I, I I don't dislike it, but I think it leaves the. I think it was very smart writing, and it leaves it open for like the reader to take a side on what happened. So right. why don't you kick us off? What where where do we begin? Right. So we begin uh, on Krakoa uh, appropriately before the storm uh, <laughs> with Storm herself, and there's something of note here, very important to fans of Storm from the '90s in particular we have Storm in a beautiful white costume. Beautiful white costume. It is a white version of her X-Men red black uniform. Uh, It's just inverted here. Um, And it turns out, you know, there is a reason for that. I won't spoil it yet. But it's Storm in the garden. Um, She looks so regal. And she's also in a garden, which is such a huge hallmark of the character. Right, her garden in the She gravitates, yeah. She gravitates towards that. And Kitty Pride, who's also in the scene, calls her out on that. Right. Saying, like, I like seeing you in the garden. Right, so and as Storm is contemplating, she is uh, thinking of Polaris uh, when she was... I'm not gonna say possessed, but when she was speaking in tongues, was speaking in tongues, I mean, um, the most English or Krakoan, right? The Krakoan tongues, the most obvious of all the clues once goddess, once queen, uh, a little nod to vibranium, which is gonna definitely come into play this issue. Uh, so Storm had no doubt, uh, who was being referenced there, and she's sitting there, sort of seemingly, um, reflecting on her own history as she's talking to Kitty. We have these awesome. Uh, side panels that sort of we have eight side panels that depict uh, different moments of her life there is kind of an awkward time jump here we have some early uh, Cockrum era costume stuff with her uh, flying in the danger room and defeating uh, Callisto for leadership of the Morlocks but then it jumps all the way to the uh, second volume of Uncanny X-Force where she had that beautiful mohawk and Chris Anka costume. Nothing is wrong with that, of course. It just seems like they skipped over quite a bit of important (laughs) storm history there. Um, But she has a nice conversation with Kitty. um, And it's such a wonderful, like, homage to their relationship. You know, we, we all know Kitty Pride began in Dark Phoenix talking to Storm and I just love seeing how their relationship has grown and changed. And they have a strong rapport. And of course, they would seek solace with each other. Um, I don't want to spend too much time uh, talking we- about Kitty Pride here, but we have to acknowledge the costume. Oh, yeah. She's, she's full. She's back. She has a wavy hair. She has that amazing uh, Alan Davis wavy hair that she had in the early X fact, or sorry, early X caliber. Um, but she is definitely wearing her uh, Red Queen pirate finery here. Oh, um, she looks so great. It is tacky and 
all the right <laughs> ways. It definitely, to it's me... Skimpy. It's skimpy. It feels like a callback to the outfit she made as a teenager that was just a bunch of random crap thrown oh, together. Oh, where she was on skates yes. and like she was Sprite. Yes. You know, maybe it's just me, but... Kitty having questionable fashion taste is like a hallmark of the character. So I love her here. I absolutely love it. I mean, Kitty's our own little publicity stunt. The non-threatening Shadowcat or Sprite or whatever unincredibly impressive name you're going by. Speaking of impressive, you just... All weekend, the entire time we have been hanging out, Dayspring has been just like dropping X-Men quotes from all media into our normal conversation and getting pissed at me when I can't identify what he's talking about. I'm literally, folks, I'm like handing certain things to him. I'm like, I didn't fly across a whole like ocean just to take no for an answer. That is Rogue in The Cure episode of the X-Men animated series. And I, it's iconic Rogue. It was, a, how did you not know that? I have no answers. <laughs> I'm I'm full, I'm filled with shame. I think no. What I've realized on this trip, you have such a great grasp on the X Men as like a whole and 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 the entire like franchise. And I like to focus in on like the stories and the dialogues and the character development. Right. So, I mean, you're we're both into it. Like I, I'm into the X Men franchise as a whole. But I think in terms of our understanding. Like, you can read through everything, you understand the higher concepts of it, and I always tend to focus on, like, the more subatomic levels. Right, and I think that that's what, uh, you know, is hopefully making this podcast interesting, is, you know, I'm reading it more as a superhero comic, and you're reading it more as, like, allegories for all of this deep, meaningful character stuff we spoilers we have two women of color sitting down and having probably one of the best conversations i've seen of women of color in a comic book i'm not saying it's the best is the ultimate blah 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 but what i'm saying is it is a well thought out dialogue between two characters i don't want to spoil anything but uh before we get there Something happens. We get a little history lesson on... God, I want to say Stormbreaker. (laughs) The blade is not called Stormbreaker. Skybreaker. Skybreaker, Skybreaker. yes. So Skybreaker is the sword that Storm has come to... Or needs to retrieve, rather, from Wakanda. Mm -hmm. uh, From Storm and Kitty at the Krakoan Gate. Uh, We learn where that gate is going to take us in the form of a flashback where uh the sky split open with lightning and struck a sacred mountain it turns out that that is a mountain of vibranium that the first wakandan king uh uses to forge a sword named skybreaker and so then we flash from there to storm entering wakanda and on the throne sits uh the queen and to her left, right. Right? right? Let me see the art. To her right is Shuri. And oh my God. I mean, this is such a great scene. And Storm comes in and they're like, Storm, are you here? You know, as an ambassador for Krakoa, you're our sister. What can we do for you? It's just such a wonderful, beautiful scene. And you can see Storm's relationship with these women. Which I think is a really wonderful thing because... If, you know, any of our listeners remember, of course, the marriage of Black Panther and Storm was shoehorned into Civil War, uh, and then an abrupt annulment was shoehorned into Avengers vs. X-Men, and in between uh, those two events happening, 
we didn't get, in my opinion anyways, we didn't get a whole lot of great stories about why they were together. We so, didn't okay. get many stories that focused on the relationship and why they didn't work out. Because li- for me, at least, it came so left field when they're fighting and Storm is in, in Avengers versus X-Men, when they're fighting and Storm is about to attack her husband and goes, you're such an arrogant man, that's why we need a marriage counselor. I was like, what? Like, I, I'm not saying there were no seeds for that, you know, planted, at the time but i just it felt very left field because this was supposed to be like a very power couple marriage i mean this was you know victoria beckham and david beckham this was beyonce and jay-z this was michelle obama and barack and now all of a sudden they're they have a marriage counselor and they're fighting each other like i wouldn't even like if we were on opposite ends of like a, a battle i would feel even with you and we're not obviously married I would feel very hesitant to to hit you. So I felt I was kind of like, I don't know. I, I, I just felt it was like cheap to do that right. at the time. Well, but also at the time, I don't think any of us X fans were necessarily rooting for that marriage. So I remember at the time You're right. actually being kind of happy that it was just hand waved away. But because it, it took Storm away from us. It did. It, it took, took Storm, Storm away from, from the X-Men. It, and it, they just... You know, came out of left field with this like history between T'Challa and Aurora, and I just felt, you know, it wasn't organic. It was, and then they just got married. Like it was like, oh hey, by the way, Storm and Black Panther have the secret history t- together, and they're getting married next issue. Right. And you're like, what? So, but now because their relationship has been able to set in over time, I, I actually root for them. I I do like them as a couple, and you know, not to segue or go on a tangent here, but. We want to see Storm and Black Panther too. Not anymore with everything that happened with Chadwick, obviously. Uh, I think they have bigger fish to fry in terms of the narrative. But Storm coming in in Wakanda, like that's that's what we want to see. So this issue, I love it. She like shows up and she explains to the queen and the princess what is happening on Krakoa and why she needs Skybreaker. Yes, she lets them both know that Wakanda has a vital role to play uh, in the war in Otherworld. Um, she, they offer her a variety of weapons, uh, the Nation Maker, the blade that belonged to the founder of Wakanda's capital city, the Panther's Claw, traditional blades of the Black Panther, and of course the King's Mercy, uh, which T'Chaka forged, but Storm is here for none of these things. I love it. Storm is like, oh, sigh. She's like, I, I, I want the Holy Grail of weapons in Wakanda. I want Skybreaker. Which, of course, takes uh, Shuri and her mother by complete surprise. <laughs> They're so shook. I love it. They're like, what do you mean? It would be disaster. People would riot. You know that is not possible, Storm. <laughs> like, they literally, like, are just not having that. Not having it at all. And rather than making the decision for themselves, they say, you know, we need to wait for T'Challa to come back. He is the king. Uh, Storm agrees reluctantly that she and, will wait for T'Challa. And wait, this and, and wait. There's um, more. No, there's that's one of the underlying themes uh, in this issue because they tell her, Storm, we want to help you. Just wait for the king to return. Wait for T'Challa to return. Wait. And so then we flash forward, or we don't flash forward. We just move to the next scene where Storm is in a fabulous Wakandan 
uh, apartment overlooking the city and she gets a knock on her door and it's Shuri and Shuri says something to the effect, I'm just paraphrasing what she's saying, you know, you were once my sister-in-law, let's sit down and eat, let's talk about what's going on. And I think it was evident from the beginning because we got the panel before where Shuri looks at Storm and she's suspicious. So this is very... Uh, tactful of her to come in with dinner and she wants to I think she wants to pump Storm for information I'm not saying that there's no love there between them right but I think she knows something's up with Storm she knows Storm well enough to know she's not just gonna roll over and wait right and I I have to say I didn't necessarily pick up that context uh on the first read of this I didn't necessarily pick up Shuri's questioning eyes as Storm uh agrees to wait for T'Challa uh, so, yeah, I didn't necessarily pick up on the fact that uh, Shuri was, you know, doing more here than just trying to be uh, an accommodating host. It's a really smart of Shuri to come in and diffuse the situation uh, with food. But and- we see, and I'm sorry to interrupt you because yeah. I feel so strongly about this. We see that Shuri is prodigious. She's not just a gifted inventor or protector. She's also also socially aware. She's socially, she can see the forest for the trees. Right. And I just love the layers they've made with Shuri. I, I haven't read many comic books with her. Obviously, I love her in Black Panther and I Avengers. I highly recommend her solo series. Oh, really? It was very good. Well, I'm downloading that for my flight home when I have to leave you. I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss you too. Oh. Um, but... Her the layering in, in it with Sherry in this particular scene, I just I was taken back about it, from it, like and just like first read, and I was just like, this is wonderful. And by the way, it's she's not being deceptive. She's not trying to pull a fast one on Storm. She loves Storm, and I trust that Storm is smart enough, as we know, obviously. As the, as the scene progresses, Storm knows what she's doing. Right. She knows, and and Storm is like, listen. Like, if I don't get this blade, if I don't get Skybreaker, uh, Krakoa will fall. And that's going to be the entire, like, world. And my people are going to be doomed. And Shuri's like, well, I need to think about my people as well. And I need to think about their safety. And and they just have this really wonderful, very rich, very uh, smart conversation. And again, like I said earlier in in, in this episode... I think this is one of the best scenes I've seen of two women of color. There's so much layering in this. They understand each other. They're sisters. They're not talking about man. They're not certainly talking about T'Challa, even though they do. But um, and speaking of that, though, you know, Shuri says, you know, I wish you would just wait for my brother to come back. And she's like, well, and Storm is like, well, let me tell you about your brother. Your brother has ignored my pleas for help. And you really do get to see this like 360 perspective on the Storm T'Challa marriage. And and again, I can understand that. I can understand why they got a divorce if Storm feels that way. We've just never been served this layering of, of the relationship. So I think it's just so masterful. I love the scene so much. Right. And I, what I really love about it is essentially we have two pages of dense dialogue uh, with two people just sitting at a table eating and emoting and having these really serious conversations that, you know, Shuri's alluding to the political situation, the implications mm-hmm. uh, that Krakoa, you know, could be used, uh, you know, is in a way destabilizing some of the world's superpowers with the, the cure-all flowers that they're flooding, uh, you know, the market with. So Shuri is, you know, questioning sort of, 
uh, Krakoa. Um, and, and Storm absolutely is not having it. She Her counter to Shuri is this flower has saved thousands of lives. Right. And her overall point is that, you know, what's waiting for them on the other side of the gates in Otherworld, it does not care about good intentions or political alliances. Just give Storm her damn sword. So this is a setup and this is what I love about it. it this isn't spoiler for like the issue. You know, we're going to get a Storm Shuri fight. But at least they set it up in such a way that you can understand their perspectives. Right, right. And, and I appreciate that. And they're not motivated by anything else other than like protecting their people and making sure their people are thriving. And these are two, you know, groups of people that, you know, are going to suffer tremendously from Storm either getting or not getting uh, Skybreaker. I keep wanting to say Stormbreaker. I know. That's her, that's her uh, Asgardian hammer, is it not? Yeah. No, no, no. That's... Better Ray Bills. Yeah, that's Better Ray Bills. And uh, yeah, so it's just, it's great. It's uh, it's wonderful. So, you know, they kind of agree to disagree. and Storm throws her out. Storm, Storm is like, get get out of my room. In the politest way possible, yeah. of course. Um, and then what, what ha- I know you love this scene. Folks, this is, when I read this, I was like, <gasps> right. So, you and know. And it's such a little thing, but again, it, pulls into perspective why Storm is wearing a white costume. Right. So, you know, as mentioned, you know, a little bit earlier, Storm is wearing a white version of a costume that is traditionally black. And uh, we find out why. So after Shuri leaves, uh, Storm pulls out of her bag the black version of her costume um, as she's going to go do some uh, stealth thievery. Call back to Mm -hmm. her... It's, it's a callback to something that we saw earlier in the issue um, where we were reminded in those little uh, of the eight flashbacks that Storm was once a master thief on the streets of Cairo. Um, so yeah, we know exactly what Storm is putting on a black costume to go do, uh, even though we don't find out for a couple uh, until the next page as we start uh, doing a little flashback to Black Panther in Storm's wedding. We can tell because Storm is wearing that fabulous oh, uh, you're right. wedding dress. You're right. So we're alternating here between panels of Storm breaking into uh, a Wakandan sacred temple. Yeah, I think it's called the Temple of the Heart of Wakanda. Yes, and this is interspersed again with scenes of her and T'Challa on their wedding day as he is explaining the significance of this hall and the warriors. The only thing I'll say about that is like how convenient, (laughs) you know, that uh, T'Challa took the time to explain like literally this temple uh, step by step for Storm, and I mean that's fine. I, they're married. She's queen. They she, call that out. Yeah, it actually says. Oh yeah, you're right. A, you're a right. Part of me wonders if T'Challa knew that I might need to infiltrate this place someday. That he might yeah. want me to succeed in bypassing these measures if the need was great enough. So I think that gives it uh, kind of an interesting, uh, another interesting layer to it because. You know, that just says T'Challa knows his wife. And again, yeah. this was a rushed marriage that nobody saw coming, nobody really wanted at the time. Um, but now as they're, you know, interweaving these, you know, these flashbacks that are sort of establishing the relationship a little bit better uh, and showing, you know, T'Challa knows his wife well enough to, to, to know that she would uh, perhaps one day need this sword, this mystical sword forged of lightning. Well, yeah, right there. But uh, just to give a little quick break right here, because I want to give a tangent. I think their marriage works, or the, the idea of their marriage works now, so many years later, because they've given enough context and story within. My main grievance with a lot of 
X-Men story, we see this also a lot in the movies, they just rush a story that just needs to marinate. So I feel like the Storm Black Panther marriage, I'm 1000% a fanboy of today. But in the past, like they gave readers no context. Right. And it was a victim of like the way books are, are shipped, scheduling if you're following along in real time. So yeah, we get a full view of their marriage. And you know, T'Challa knows his wife and he was able to put two and two together. Like, wow, maybe one day my wife is gonna need this like skybreaker sword because it's you know, it's lightning based and she controls lightning, you know, the, the weather. Um so I love that. I, I think it's great. And what else I what I also love about the scene of her breaking into the temple, it's Storm's not using she uses electricity at first, of course, to short circuit the system, but she's not using her powers on like the guards. Right. She's we are reminded that Storm is skilled in hand-to-hand combat. Mm-hmm. She's very stealthy. And she can she can take people down because right. she's powerful. I mean, she's physically powerful. Right. We get a whole page dedicated to a fight. Uh, it's several panels of a fight between Storm and one of the priests guarding uh, Skybreaker. And you have to assume that these are, you know, if this is such a sacred weapon and such a sacred location for them, uh, you would have to assume that these are some of the best warriors in all of Wakanda. And Storm takes him down without power. She is literally kicking their ass. She has her hair up. She means business in her black costume. And she is not using, again, just to drive that point home, not using any powers. It's just her. And uh, so finally she takes down the guard. And by the way, it's a really lovely thing. The guard is like your traitor, everything. And she's here like, I I pray one day you'll know what's at stake. Right. Because they, and and by the way, again, Storm, this, this particular panel is setting up the stakes for this crossover and i've been enjoying this more and more because again going into this crossover i'm like what why are we doing this crossover and the more i've been reading the more i've been enjoying and understanding why right and i think a lot of that stems from the fact this crossover is sort of born out of what's going on in excalibur and excalibur has not been the most clear and consistent of the books i have enjoyed it because i enjoy the cast but it was not captain britain is phenomenal and Jubilee, Richter, Gambit, Rogue, all like it's a great team. Solid, but folks. I do feel sometimes if you're if if you're picking up Excalibur and don't have a good concept of the the X books, like you're gonna have no clue what's happening. You're gonna have no clue. It's it, it's hard. Even I like am reading this. I'm like I'm lost. I don't know what's going like, on. When here. did Apocalypse become a magician? Like, yeah, that, like he's he's supposed to be his the entire focal point of the character is Darwinism and and science. And I'm fine with making that pivot to being a magician. It just wasn't this, well done. It just wasn't given to me. And again, maybe this is something ten years from now we'll be able to see with context. Right, but and, um, yeah. So, so Storm gets her hands on Skybreaker. She actually uses her powers for the first time. Uh, in this whole break-in. And oh my gosh, who's right behind her? Shockingly enough, it is Shockingly. Shuri. Shockingly Shuri. And again, Shuri knew. Shuri was like, I just, I had instinct. I knew. And and this is, again, where we see another layer of her. She is a princess. She has good instincts. I mean, she's just overall prodigious. She hoped her intuition would be wrong and she would not find Storm here. And she's, what did she say? Well... Storm uh, tells Princess Shuri to stand aside where they, uh, you know, continue to argue about how taking Skybreaker will destabilize Wakanda and cause all this strife, Um, which I'm not 
read up enough on Black Panther, unfortunately, enough to know if Skybreaker is an existing concept or if this is just something that we are retroactively uh, introducing and putting a lot of importance on. Yeah, folks, if you know, feel free to uh, message us on Instagram at Generations of X. You can email us at generationsofx at gmail.com and let us know, is Skybreaker uh, something that is in the lore? Has it appeared before in the Marvel Universe? Or are we... Are we just seeing this and it's being retroactively given importance? Which I'm fine with either way. I, either I, way. I feel the story has set it up. I understand the sword. I like it. Um, and then Shuri and Storm are fighting. And they're having a dialogue. And Shuri's like, Storm is like, you're my sister. And Shuri's like, look, it's not too late. We don't have to fight. You know, we can bring you back to the palace. You'll get a pardon. And we can forget all this happened. Right, she's trying to reason with Storm before she eventually realizes she has no choice. Uh, Storm, you know, gives her a little bit of sass, lets her know that she's chosen selfishly, and then destroys her energy gauntlets with an Arctic wind blast. Arctic blast! I think that was Iceman's extreme move in Ultimate Alliance. I think. Uh, you would know better than I. It's been Or years. X-Men Legends, one of those. I think he does like an Arctic blast or something like that. But anyways, um, so they start fighting. They uh, So then they grab swords. swords because, you know, this is an event about swords, uh, which is not exactly the best move for a genius like Shuri because uh, how does Storm take her oh out? Oh my God. This is, I again, this was another audible gasp moment because Shuri points the sword at Storm's face and Storm's like, hold up. And just taps the sword and releases electricity and shocks Shuri. I that was wonderful. I mean, look, I'm sorry they have to fight, but I love the fact that Storm all had to do, all she had to do was tap. And and again, Shuri is brilliant. She's prodigious, but she's fighting her ex sister in law. There's so many emotions. I think under a normal circumstances, other circumstances, excuse me, her head would be a bit more clear, but it's clouded uh by her by her emotions for storm so storm takes her out with just the tap of a finger right takes her out and starts her uh at oh uh, we should mention the entire time that they're talking and fighting uh there is a countdown to system reboot remember uh, at the beginning of of this uh break-in storm used her electrical powers to take out the security um so the system comes back online as storm is trying to escape uh T'Challa has changed the security code, so maybe he wasn't wanting her to uh, to get away with this as much as we thought. It's open to interpretation. I could see that as being maybe he knew she would come one day, and he was vindictive, and he switched the codes on her. Right, and her beloved... Or was it the codes? I, was it like a DNA sample matching? I don't know. It, it's, it, it involved... it's a Wakanda security system that, right. Some... that we couldn't even afford if we wanted to. Right, so. and as part of this Wakanda security system, we have these little uh, robo-cat-looking things that start charging at storm uh and we learn that her beloved ex-husband failed to inform her about these robots but it doesn't matter because we get a beautiful splash page of storm going full goddess and zapping all the robots at once the art is beautiful this is a great shot i'm gonna instagram it she takes them all out like what we see at least one two three four five six we see at least eight robots here and storm takes them out with one blast and one swipe of skybreaker it's it's pretty badass and again we're reminded that storm is not only a powerful mutant she's a powerful like 
thief. She's uh, powerful in hand-to-hand combat. And I just, I love what they did with Storm and her power set here and all her skills and abilities. Right. And so, you know, we've been talking about a lot of emotion uh, in this issue between Storm and Shuri and uh, Queen Ramonda, but we finally get the showdown of sorts that we are, have been waiting for this whole issue as T'Challa finally shows up. His guards are pissed. They want to attack Storm. She's got Skybreaker. And uh, T'Challa stops her, and they have a wonderful little conversation. Uh, And again, here's the issue. Um, He says, I wish you would have just waited for me to come back. And she, Storm is like, no, this is about my people. We need to save my people. And he goes, there was a time where Wakanda was your people. And... It, you can just see the heartbreak in him as he's talking to her. Because, you know what? And and here's where I love Storm. But I'm going to be on T'Challa's side here. If she had just waited, and if she had just spoken to him about it, I'm pretty sure he would have given her the blade. Well, but as Storm herself says, you know, this is bigger than you and I, T'Challa, bigger mm-hmm. than Wakanda or Krakoa. She could not wait to decide when he had the time to talk to her about it. She had to take this into her own hands. Uh, before, you know, the entire Omniverse is destroyed. So I'm on Storm's side here. I can understand why you might side with Black Panther just because, you know, it is heartbreaking to have someone that you uh, love so much betray you uh, and your entire family in this sort of way. But when it's the stake of all reality, uh, when the stakes are all reality itself, what choice does Storm have here? Well, you know, and I think this is where we get some pathos for their marriage. Like, T'Challa may have made mistakes. You know, I think there's so much subtext in this issue where you can infer, uh, you know, how their marriage was. You know, did he switch the security codes to be vindictive? What, did he just fail to tell her that? Um, you know, but he, he, said, he looks at Storm and goes, well... You know, I've never known you to be malicious or, you know, hurtful. So I'm going to let you go. Take and he it. does. He Take lets it. her go. He does. He gave her the sword. But, but this is a perfect example of had she waited, he would have given her the sword. No questions asked. No questions asked. But there are consequences for Storm's decision here. Uh, King T'Challa commands his army to destroy the gate if the emissary of Krakoa wishes to return it will not be as a thief in the night but with the permission and grace of Wakanda if we so choose uh so T'Challa's really putting it out there he's like you're not welcome here unless I tell you you're welcome here um this I really feel like is probably going to come back to play uh in a major way because as we know since the beginning of Powers of X Wakanda is not one of the nations that have accepted the Krakoan drugs Uh, that heal and extend life. Um, So, you know, I think this is just another sort of... I mean, it's not a... That was probably um, a little bit more subtle. I think we're getting into more overt territory here that something is going to happen between Wakanda and Krakoa. I agree. I agree. So, like, I cannot agree with you enough. And that's shocking because I always think you're wrong. But... I usually um, am. (laughs) But yeah, the seeds have been planted through this run that there is tension building between these two nations. So let's see what happens with Krakoa and Wakanda. But our next scene, Storm is back on Krakoa. Kitty Pride is like, well, 
And Storm is just like, there's going to be, it's a long road ahead of us to rebuild our relationship with Wakanda. Right, but Kitty, you know, uh, in this instance, usually it's Storm giving great advice to Kitty, but in this instance, it's Kitty giving good advice to Storm, telling her that she needs to hold fast. She did what needed to be done. And she goes and she joins Wolverine and Magic, who are just hanging out on the corpse of Rockslide. At least they're sitting down They're now. sitting down. They're having a party. And so now we have three of our champions and ready I, to go. I do want to say one more thing about Storm's dialogue here uh, at the end. I think it's a really great line. Um, I have been a protector longer than I have been a wife. I know the sacrifices that must be made. I know who I am. And that, that. is amazing to hear out of Storm, who, again, is a character uh, who is, you know, important to the mythos of X-Men, all of the important X-Men stories uh, she has been there for. She was the leader for most of that. But uh, here in the, the more recent past, she has been, her importance has been uh, downplayed. So getting this issue where... Storm is super confident. It's the stakes are super personal. And at the end of it, you know, as usual, Storm knows what the sacrifices are. She knows who she is and she knows what she has to do. The return to this confident queen of a character. And she doesn't need the title to be a queen. Exactly. She's, she's a queen. Period. She's a goddess. I mean, goddess. She's a goddess. She's beyond queen. She doesn't need that title. She is Storm and she knows who she is. So I thought this was a great issue. I, I loved it, was it. Incredible. I thought it was so layered. I think there was a lot to pick at. I think readers can be on like opposite ends of the spectrum of like, do you agree with Storm or T'Challa? Um, all the way her, storm you see her relationship and what you mentioned and i didn't even pick up on that on the read yeah where storm was the mentor for kitty now kitty's the one dispensing like really solid advice to her and it just shows growth in the relationship i think what we see is i think growth is a really big part of this issue because we see yes. storm as a thief who ascended into being a goddess but going back to being a thief and t'challa's like you're not coming back as a thief you're coming back as an ambassador for your country and we will deal with you when you're you know welcomed back i just i think it's so layered it's a great it's a great issue it i is. have no qualms and i think what is so great about this and what i enjoyed so much more about this than i did the wolverine uh two issues is i feel like more we got not only did we get more plot in this one issue we got more character than we got in the entirety of the two issues of, of Wolverine and X-Force. This was a character-driven issue. It wasn't just a, here are the pieces are on the chessboard. We have to move them from, from here to there to, you know, get the story moving along. While this did that, you know, it is at its heart the story of Storm retrieving the sword that she's going to need to further the crossover. But there's so much character work here. Storm and Shuri, Storm and T'Challa, Storm and Kitty, Storm and herself. Uh, Storm and herself. I mean that. I mean that's what drove the 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 story. It it drove the story, and I loved it. I have no qualms with this issue. I I I would have liked more of it. <laughs> I just thought there was so much. But we got to move the crossover along and. It's great. So um, that's it, folks. And next week, I think we're picking up with three more chapters. Yes, next week we are going to have... Drumroll, please. Hellions number five, New Mutants number 13, and Cable number five. My name is the Uncanny Dayspring. 
And I am the adjectiveless Flinkman. You can email us any questions at generationsofx at gmail.com or follow along on Instagram at generationsofx. Thank <laughs> you.